0: God bless you have a seat and welcome to those as Josh has already greeted you that are online Uh, tonight we reached the end of this um, now what waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit we reached the end of chapter 2 could you believe it there's probably I actually probably could have done two out of tonight but I made it one and uh, so we're going to continue on Acts 2.38 says this. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we wrap up this chapter tonight, um, we're going to see that the answers that we give to people Is what can birth, what could spark a revival in the hearts of those around us? The answer that we give. Believe it or not, we are always in the action of being living testaments of Jesus Christ. We are either speaking um a a light we are either speaking words that are going to bring life to people that are going to cause people to desire to know more of what we're saying have you ever told a story and somebody um have you ever listened to somebody tell a story and they go oh, forget it, I'll I'll tell you another day. And you're like, no, 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 tell me now. Like, why do you even start? Why do you do that? This is how it should be when we're sharing Christ, when we are in the company of others that do not know Christ. Even if we're not saying anything, there should be something about our company that deems them to want to spend more time with us or tell me more about yourself. There's something different about you. And so um, this is where we are at. Tonight, as we are going to look through, I'm going to read from Acts 37 to 47. And we're going to see three main components take place tonight. We're going to see, as Peter addresses a the crowd, there is a conviction that falls upon this crowd. There is a conversion that falls upon this crowd. And then there is that inner inner um, longing for a communion. So I'm not Pastor Dino, but for three Cs, conviction, conversion, and communion, put it down in your notes, and then you can make and add more to it Um, but here we go from acts chapter 2 verse 37 to 47 now when they heard this they were cut to the heart you want to underline that and we're gonna get to it cut to the heart and said to peter and the rest of the apostles brothers what shall we do and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, Every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls and they devoted themselves to the apostles teachings and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, were together. That we have to operate in daily. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The synopsis of what's happening is they have come, they have gathered, they have heard a great sermon, but that sermon revived something within them that they lingered around. They lingered around and they provided for one another. All who believed were together and had all things in common and and in the providing for, for each other you know in those days when they would come from out of town for the feast of tabernacle or the feast of pentecost or whatever feast they were traveling for they would spend time in people's home and the jewish custom was it wasn't an airbnb where you paid so many dollars and this is what you got you just opened up your home for those that were coming in for the feast. You just opened up for your home for the fellowship of others that were coming in for the feast. And so, this is what is happening in the background, and as we go through, um, I just want you to keep that in the background. Conviction, conversion, communion is what we will break down. So the Holy Spirit, operating through Peter, he gives this great sermon, and as these Jews that have been gathered for the Feast of Pentecost hear this sermon, their minds are opened. Their minds are opened, not because Peter had eloquence of words, not because he, he gave such a great teaching and exhortation but their minds were open because the holy spirit was present and he caused them to see the truth of this man jesus that bore their sins that bore the weight of their guilt on the cross and second corinthians 521 supports this when paul said for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now these Jews that had gathered there are understanding this Jesus was guiltless. Yet he took upon himself our sin. And their eyes are understanding this. And so the work of God is being done in their hearts. And the pouring out of his love for them. Jesus was not a sinner yet he bore our sins. He was not guilty, yet he bore our guilt. Doesn't that just make you want to park and think about that? I read uh, um, a story today, and I forget the the, uh, young man's name, but I believe it was in 1940, and he was electrocuted to death. And he took the guilt... He was falsely accused, his first name was George, he was falsely accused in the South for killing two young women, an 11-year-old and a 7-year-old. And so the police set him up. And so this young 14-year-old boy was electrocuted with uh, 5,000-some-odd jewels. And now, years later... The case was reopened. He stood before a white jury, I think it was 12, and within 10 minutes they had made their decision to find him guilty. Now, as they have dug further and they reopened the case, this boy was guiltless, yet he took the pain for somebody else's crime. And the whole time, whenever he had to go to court, whenever he had to stand before officers, when, even when he went to the chair, he was holding tight to his Bible saying, I am not guilty. I am not guilty. And if we could understand the price this young boy paid because two young women were killed and it just so happened that their body remains were found close to his home, That the police set him up to be charged. Jesus was without guilt, yet he took upon himself our guilt, our sin, our shame. And if the case is reopened weekly in our services then we should feel the same ouch as when we see a young boy sitting on an on electrocuting chair with um, the, the cap on, about to receive 5,000 plus joules of electrical shock going through his brain to kill him instantly. And it's not, not a, a painless thing. It is a very painful thing. If we could feel that pinch in the elch and shake our heads at the pain that this young boy went through, then how much more can we be thankful for what Jesus endured? Because it wasn't just on the cross. As we know, if we've been working through this study of Jesus, we saw him in the garden agonizing over the decision to go to the cross we saw him agonizing in the beatings that he endured we saw him agonizing in the cross and yet while he took our punishment he remained perfect it's just mind-blowing he remained perfect and his resurrection proves that it is in fact true that he died for our sins If he he did not resurrect, there would be no proof. And so here are these Jews gathered and it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart because Peter had just laid everything out to him. You crucified and killed by your hands of lawless men. That's what he told them. And they, heard, they were cut to the heart and said to, the, to Peter and the rest of the apostles, because as he's preaching, the other 11 were with him, or 10, because by this point Judas had, had betrayed, he wasn't there. So cut to the heart. What shall we do? So we know right here that the Holy Spirit has been working in them. We don't have to look far for the Holy Spirit because last week I said, look to see what the Holy Spirit is doing. Don't miss what the Holy Spirit is doing. What is he doing here? He is going right to the very core of who they are, he is piercing right through their heart. They're moved by what Peter has proclaimed to them. And Luke has chosen to use the term cut to the heart. It gives us an understanding. What cuts? Knives. Knives cut. Swords cut. Scissors cut. It gives us an understanding understanding that some sort of pain, some sort of awareness of something that is able to cut away, something that is able to stab, has pierced their conscience. Where is the Holy Spirit? He's doing just exactly what Jesus said he would do. In John 16, he says, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He is convicting them. It's not Peter, but his words carried on the power of the Holy Spirit has cut to the heart. Cutting to the heart. Luke... um, Let's go deeper into what Luke is saying. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, For the word of God is what? Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What? Piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When the Holy Spirit is working on these Jews that have gathered there, it is going right to the very intentions of their heart. The intentions of why they chose to crucify the Christ. The intentions of what they were thinking. We come to church, we have our mask on, we have this form of godliness, this form of religiosity, we we look like Christians, but 2 Timothy, 3 verse 5 says that we would have the appearance of godliness but denying what the power thereof what is that power the actual power of the holy spirit working through our lives changing us transforming us molding us into the person that god desires us to be so when we see having the appearance of godliness but denying its power Timothy was exhorting the people, um, John, Paul was exhorting Timothy, avoid such people, avoid such people that give off this pomp and pious. If the Holy Spirit's power is truly operating in you and through you, the old man has no room. Oh, he creeps in now and again, but the Holy Spirit will quickly convict you to say, well, that's not, yes. And you can acknowledge, yes, I did that in my flesh. Yes, I flared up in my flesh. Yes, that was a demonstration of my flesh. So the power of the Holy Spirit transforms us. It's the power of God's word. They are hearing God's word. Why? Because he brought them to Joel. He brought them the Psalms. And he exhorted them in these areas. And there it, initially, they were drawn by the sounds of the tongues in different languages, in their own personal language. It drew them. And when it drew them, it drew them with such power. It was a magnetizing power. It caused them to come closer. It caused them to draw to the center of where it was all happening and ask a question, what does this mean? Some of those, why? Because they are of that, um, the the crowd where, where Paul says, avoid such one they were mocking saying oh they're drunk don't pay attention to them so the demonstration of speaking in tongues did two things it drew the attention of those that were magnetized by the power of the Holy Spirit to hunger and want more to know what was happening and it drew the reality of the flesh man ah, mocking the man that made fun of it the the, those that uh, made it as though they were drunk. But Peter began to speak under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And as he begins to speak under the Holy Spirit's influence, the truth of the gospel went forth. What happens when the truth of the gospel went, goes forth? Jesus said this in John 14, uh, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me right? What else did he say? He said in, in John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Who is the word? According to John 1, 14, Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word. It says, word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Oh, right here you might say, yes, yes, yes. But didn't Jesus say that the Holy Spirit was truth? Yes, in fact, he did in, in John 16 verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. But Jesus called himself truth. Yes, because that's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They all work together. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus who points us to the Father. And so Jesus, the operating influence of truth rose up in that moment as Peter is speaking forth the gospel. And it brought clarity. And so those that heard Peter's words that day, experience the inner workings of conviction has it happened to you where you're in and you're reading the word of god and all of a sudden the holy spirit pricks your your heart and uh, uh, oh i know yeah guilty as charged the holy spirit's working and so the when, when the word of god is spoken The truth unveils our eyes and we see clearly. They saw clearly. And the Holy Spirit, as I just said, always will work in tandem with God the Father and God the Son. He doesn't work on his own to draw attention to himself. It's always to point glory to God. Whenever you see the operation of somebody apparently flowing in the spirit if they're drawing all kinds of attention to themselves there's a whole lot of flesh going on because the holy spirit will draw attention and point the attention to the father at all times at all times you will know that god is moving on a person's life because either while you're witnessing what is taking place you are drawn to worship god or God begins to move on you and you begin to experience that. But if there's all kinds of commotion and it's drawn, there's a whole lot of flesh. A whole lot of flesh. So we see conviction in full force taking place here. Cutting to their heart. The piercing that they experienced was a deadly piercing. It wasn't just a, oh my God, ugh. Boy, he really hit a sensitive spot there. It was a deadly piercing because it went right to the intention of their hearts. It cauterized, it, it, it um, removed that area that, um, okay, here, here's what it is. The scripture uses this, 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, Now the Spirit expressively says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Okay. When there's been a searing, what happens is the scar tissue causes you to be numbed, that you don't feel the pain anymore. So no. Now when somebody has given themselves up to all different kinds of other ideologies, all different kinds of other beliefs, when the true morals are being taught, when the true truth is being taught, they become numb to it. But here in this situation, the Holy Spirit has gone right to the, thi- it has cut to the heart. It has brung, brought a death to that area that became numb to the truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit went and cut that Tissue out that scar tissue that build up that calloused area of the heart and removed it. The conscience is God's given moral conscience within each of us. When when, um, when a farmer has some bulls or some cows or some cattle that he wants to mark as his own, he will brand them with his initials. That branding. Form scar tissue, that scar tissue is numb. That numbed area is is not as sensitive to pain. When our conscience becomes uh, influenced by the world that is around us, we are not as sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We need to have a cutting to the heart. so that the Holy Spirit can move. When we come to church, we need to have a cutting to the heart. That the, that the, that the word of God exposes what the Lord wants to remove because that area is preventing him from doing all that he wants to do in our heart and life. All that he wants to set us free from. You know that that time when you just want to break forth in praise and worship. And you just want to step out of the pew and run down the aisle. And then you go, but brother so and so might be offended. Or sister so and so. And and meanwhile the Holy Spirit is just nudging you with the the understanding of the freedom that Jesus has given you, you. And the freedom that you have to worship him. And you have numbed it by that which is around you. <laughs> these Jews were in opposition to God in their treatment of his grace. He was sending forth his son to be that propitiation for them, to pay that price. He was giving them free grace and they were in opposition to that, but now they could no longer deny it. They could no longer deny. And what did they say to Peter? What shall we do? What do we do? It wasn't Peter's great sermon. But it was clearly the work of the Holy Spirit. Why do I say this? Because we can consider Peter. When he was working in the flesh and he had a sword and he was in the garden with Jesus... And and these soldiers came to arrest Jesus. What did Peter do? He drew his sword and he cut off the ear of, what was it, Malchias? And when he struck the high priest's servant and and cut that ear, Jesus in that moment uh, uh, had to quickly restore. Why? Because Peter in his flesh knew how to use a sword but now peter under the influence of the holy spirit has a whole other sword that is being used or that is being operated through him and it's the sword of the spirit under the influence of the holy spirit he doesn't make a mistake in the target of what he's doing and, like he did with Malchias in chopping off his ear. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit knows exactly where the words must land, exactly upon whose hearts will receive it, exactly upon whose hearts will be open to admit, oh, you know what? I was wrong. I should never have agreed that the Christ was to be crucified. And so under the Holy Spirit's power, Peter went from acting in the flesh, using the sword of the flesh, to being spirit controlled, and he says to them that they are to repent. Brothers, what shall we do is what they were crying out to him. And Peter, at the beginning of this, when he started in chapter 2 verse 12 he says uh, they said to him and we were all amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean that's what caused peter to start preaching but now in chapter 2 verse 37 now they're saying what does this mean they're saying but what now what do we do now what do we do because peter has shared with them the truth his first question led to their conviction The answer to this second question will lead to their conversion. Will lead to their conversion. So we have to understand that the conversion that Peter now is going to lead them into, it's not a repeat after me. Have you heard those kind of prayers? How many would like to receive the Lord? Would you show by, by, by raising your hands? I see that hand, I see that hand. Oh, funny story on that. A pastor was preaching, and uh, as after he closed, he gave a, a sermon for uh, salvation, and uh, with every head bowed and every eyes closed, and, and then he put forth the invitation, how many would like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ? And so every head was bowed and every eye was closed, And and, um, he said, I see that hand, I see that hand. And the pastor and the congregation are all being moved. Amen, 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 amen. So after, during lunch hour, the pastor said to him, brother, you know, it, it seemed like many came to the Lord this morning. About how many exactly? He says, well, not a one. He says, but I heard you say, I see that hand. I see that hand. He says, yes, I see that hand. I see, he, he was wanting to encourage the people and that maybe they wouldn't be so shy to accept the Lord as their savior if they heard that somebody else had accepted the Lord as their savior. It's not necessarily the conviction that we want to bring. We want the Holy Spirit to bring that place of, of conversion. And so there's not a formula, but Peter says in answer to their question, He says to them that they must repent he's now, they, see, what happened to them here? What caused them to recognize that they needed to do something, that they needed to take action? Because their heart realized that this was the Messiah. Their heart was worried because Peter just said to them uh, of Psalm uh, 110, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, and all of a sudden, this pierces their heart. Wait a second. If If we are guilty of crucifying this Christ we are that enemy and if he's going to make us a footstool what does that make of us and so recognizing what God has declared what happened to them they're saying what can we do what shall we do true conviction will spur you to change True conviction of the Holy Spirit will cause you to want to take action, will cause you to want to take that step. Did not the crowd, when John the Baptist, um, in Luke uh, 10, 3, verse 10, say to John the Baptist, what then shall we do? Did G, um did it not happen to Paul when he was sharing his account before the tribune and he was sharing about when he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus? And he was struck by the bright light, and he, as he's sharing his testimony in Acts chapter 22, he says, then I said to him, what shall I do, Lord? You see, whenever there is a working of the Holy Spirit, there is a heart response, a true heart response to say, what action must I take? What is the next step? What needs to be made right? What, what must I pray? Where shall I go? There always is going to be an action and a, a question and, and an action that will follow suit on that. The Philippian jailer. When Paul was in jail with Silas and they were worshiping God, And here they are worshiping God and singing his praises. And there comes this great earthquake that just causes the jail cells to become open. And those that were bound by chains while they were in that worship service, unbeknownst to them. But the presence of God as a result of Paul and Silas worshiping God. And these chains begin to fall off the prisoners. And all of a sudden, the Philippian jailer wakes up and he, he realizes, wait a second, the prison doors are open, their chains are off. And, and he then asks, what question? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 16. What must I do to be saved? He recognized in that moment this was none other than an act of God. Acts Acts 2, verses 38 to 40. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Repent, repent. Peter's message calls for application. It calls for action. He doesn't give them suggestions. He says repent. That word repent in the grammatical is an aroist, imperative. That imperative means that you must take immediate action. That imperative implies an urgency. It, it, it implies a command. It implies that you must not procrastinate. You must do it and you must do it now. So when when Peter said repent, it came with such a weightiness that it needed to be answered instantly. It needed to be done in that moment. Don't think about it. Don't ponder on it. Don't pray about it, whether or not I should or shouldn't. No, it was an imperative. It needed to have a response in that moment. And so this is how Peter addressed them. We have to, it means that we must do something. Their repentance means that there's a change in their mind. Their repentance means that they once thought this way, but now they are understanding and considering another. John the Baptist and Jesus use the same terms. Matthew 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17, for that time, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as Peter addressed their question, he said, repent. He followed as Jesus did he said as Jesus did it's about coming to God when we repent we are turning to God we're not turning to ourselves we are turning to God Isaiah 66 verse 2 we've been quoting it for several weeks now the whole month But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So there has to be a sorrow for the sin. And there must be a broken and contrite spirit. There must be a broken and contrite spirit. Repent in the Greek means uh, metatonia, which means this, to have another mind. So in the Greek, when, when they are using this, when Luke chooses to use that word in the Greek, he is inferring that they, had, they were to have another mind. That means that they were turning 180 degrees from the original mindset that they were in, that they were going to have another mindset. So repentance is not just an intellectual decision, but a change of mind, a change of mind that issues a change of behavior. You see, sometimes we think, well, I thought about it, and I've considered it, and we intellectualize the decision to follow Jesus. When really it's a change of the mind because we have taken on another mind. Let this mind be in you that was also in who? Christ Jesus. So now when we see things as they are, when we see things as he did, And as he accomplished, then we allow that mindset, we allow ourselves to make the about face, to turn 180 degrees in the direction that we were previously going, lost to our sin, lost in moral corruption, lost in our own way to following after Christ, the only one who can redeem us from our sin. Repent and be baptized, the next commandment. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So, baptism. To be baptized means baptizio. Baptizio is when you are fully covered in water. It's not the taking of a cup and sprinkling water on you. It is to be fully dipped or immersed. You know what? It is once again that grammatical term, Arius imperative. He is not just saying you should consider about being baptized. You want to think about being baptized. It's no. You repent and be baptized they are both imperatives they are both something that you must do and must do immediately take action on it the Jews commonly weren't baptized this wasn't something that was a part of their faith Factor this wasn't something that was a part of their culture in fact the only ones that would have been baptized at that time Would have been a Gentile coming into the Jewish faith So now for Paul for Peter to be saying to this Jewish congregation be baptized and do it immediately It almost gives me to think to myself, I wonder if God is saying before you change your mind, before the the snare comes in to cause you to doubt, well, I don't really know, da, da, da. Peter gives them that imperative be baptized. Some people um, think that the baptism means that this is what makes them saved no i have to say that because the the thief on the cross when jesus said to him today you shall be with me in paradise did he come off the cross at some point did i miss that in scripture or somewhere where he was baptized he wasn't baptized But there is still that imperative for us to be baptized. But I don't want to be conveying any thought or any misunderstanding that your baptism is what saves you. Your baptism is the obedience. It is the outward expression to everybody is there that is witnessing. I am choosing that the old man is being buried and the new man is coming forth. So there there should not be that misunderstanding for anyone. I have to be baptized so that I could be saved. Have you declared Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Yes, yes, you are saved. The next walk in your obedience is get baptized. As fast as you can, as soon as you can, get baptized. But the baptism does not mean you're saved, but it declares to others that you are already saved. Do you get it? The baptism doesn't save you. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you've been saved and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. What would those works be? Well, baptism could be the work. Some people could say, look, I'm getting baptized. So that no one could boast. Oh, well, I got baptized. So for sure I'm saved. No, you are saved by faith. God prepared this for us beforehand, In the, when, when Adam and Eve fell, at that time he instituted that his son would be that sacrifice for us. And that the only way that we could have forgiveness of sins, that it would come as a result of his grace demonstrated through his son. And how would we apply it to our lives? By repenting and believing. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do we believe that? So who is whosoever? Every tribe and race of this world. Every tribe and race of this world. Whoever would call upon the name of the Lord. Whether they are from Europe. Whether they are from North America. Whether they are from the Asian um, countries, whoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2 and 41. So, what happened as a result of Peter answering the question, What shall we do? Verse 41 said, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Imagine that. Imagine the coming to church Sunday morning and 3,000 people receiving Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They were pilgrims that came to Jerusalem. They came for a feast of Pentecost, but had no idea what type of feast they were going to have. They were expecting something special from God, but they certainly didn't understand that that special gift would be a gift of salvation, a gift of of God's grace. Some that were there that day eventually would make their travel back home. What do you think they brought with them? Do you think they brought souvenir, keychains? You know, wooden carved, uh, you know, camels. When they got home to others that were in their community, they brought the gospel that they just tasted of they brought the Jesus that they just encountered and so what happened there is what is truly a revival Some, sometimes I get concerned when we get caught up in the thought that a revival is a hallelujah party of everybody raising their hands and praising the Lord yes that will happen yes that is part of it but a true revival starts where it when people are repenting of their sins and coming to Jesus and taking what what they received and sharing it with others. And so there were those that went home and shared the good news of Jesus Christ with others. and. Act- 2 continues to say exactly what they did how did they teach this gospel how did they preach to their neighbors and their friends of their their communities well this they devoted themselves verse 42 to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to the prayers And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and we read it and belongings and distributing proceeds to all whoever had need and day by day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord continued to add. So it wasn't just about the 3,000. Well, actually 3,120. It was about those that kept being added day by day. Why? Because they... The third part of our, our, our focus tonight, they had communion. Their life, they, they, they continued steadfastly. There are four things that they continued in. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. They relied on what those apostles had taught them. They relied on communicating back and forth with them so that they can continue to teach about Jesus. Jesus. It is necessary that we have things such as Bible study so that we could receive the word of God so that then we can share the word of God. They continued what? Steadfastly in fellowship. The ancient Greek word for fellowship is what we know very well here, Koenia. koinonia. is Is it means that they are sharing something together. When we have Koenya Sundays, Sister Debbie taught me how to properly say that, and I hope I did it right. When we have Koenya Sundays, what are we having? Coffee, cookies, tea, conversation. How are you? So how did that job interview go? Oh, look, you're pregnant. How's your pregnancy going? Oh, your baby's so cute. And we're fellowshipping with each other. What? And so they continued steadfastly in the fellowship. And I believe it t- in totally in my heart that not only did they greet and say how beautiful the baby was growing not only did they greet and say how did the job interview going but they also said how's your walk with the lord what great things has he done in your life lately so how many prayers has he answered with you lately and encouraging one another in the lord why because we share the same jesus We share the same guide for our life, who is the Holy Spirit. We share the same love for God. If we didn't love God, we wouldn't be together. We share the same desire to worship him. Do you not want to worship him every opportunity that you have? We all share in struggles. Maybe my struggle is different from your struggle, but we all share in struggles. We all share in victories. Sometimes I have victorious days and sometimes I have lousy days. Everything could go wrong. But we all have struggles and victories. We all share in the same job to live for Him every day, to make Him known. And we all share in one common thing share the gospel. Communicate the gospel to others. So they understood this koinonia. They understood this fellowship. Because they understood the commonality that we all have with one another. That they all had one, with one another. And even though the, the fact that Jesus had just died. And it wasn't too many weeks later. They still shared in the communion, in the breaking of bread to remind themselves of the suffering that he did. They didn't say, well, we just remembered yesterday when we went to Cornelius' house. Why do we have to do it again? Because do it as often as you should. It to, in what? In remembrance of what he did. So you, Sister Grace, can go to a friend's house and you can be talking of the Lord and all of a sudden there rises up within you. Let's have some communion together. And you share of the communion. It's not to remove the 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 holiness of or the reverence, excuse me, the reverence of what we do on a Sunday in church, but it's recognizing that in that moment you have shared such a precious time together in Christ. That you could only have that time together because Christ died. You could only have that fellowship with one another because of what Christ did. And so why not seal it in a moment of, Lord, we just want to honor you for what you did. We just want to honor you in this moment. And and as we break bread, you know, thank you, Lord, that you died on the cross, that we could now have this fellowship with one another. If it weren't for you, I wouldn't have this friend to share this common interest, this common love. They continued steadfastly breaking bread, and they continued steadfastly in the prayers. They never stopped praying. It's all the pieces put together That caused there to be a revival that time in Jerusalem. Why? Because they steadfastly continued in the doctrine of the word. They didn't let the word lose their sight. They continued in the fellowship. They were together. And they continued in the breaking of bread and in prayer. And what happened as a result of all these things all came upon every soul. Verse 43. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This is what we can expect. That when we are walking in this type of fellowship. Like those first believers. When we are walking steadfastly in the teachings of God's word. When we are walking in fellowship in one, with one another. When we are remembering in communion what he did for us. When we are not forsaking that time of prayer given to him we could expect the signs and the wonders to be demonstrated in our midst we could expect the awe of wow God was in his house today we could expect it why because we're walking in the obedience of what his word has established for us and so the chapter ends like this, and all who believed were together. You need to underline that we're together. Who do you need to be together with? Who has pierced your heart that you need to be reconciled and together with? Because when there is when there is um aught between us, we're not together. We're not together. It brings a disunity. You're in church, I wish so-and-so was here today. They really need to hear this sermon. You need to hear it first because you're thinking they need to hear it. So guess what? You need to hear it first, right? And so they, they were all together. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, all things in common. We, tonight, are many nationalities in this room, but we have all things in common through our Lord Jesus Christ. And they were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing, and taking care of whatever was in need, everybody was taking care of. This is what we can count on. We go back to the title of tonight, The Answer That Brought the Revival to Jerusalem. Can I ask you, the answer that brought the revival to Jerusalem, can it not be the answer that brought the revival to Logos, to Mississauga, to Brampton, to Etobicoke? Can it not be the same answer? Yes. 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 Let us continue in the word of God. Let us continue in fellowship. Let us continue in in breaking of bread with each other. In that communion with each other. Let us continue in prayer so that we may see. I believe wholeheartedly that there is going to be an influx of souls. There's going to be an influx of prodigals. And there's going to be an influx of new souls. I believe it wholeheartedly. There cannot be the word of God going forth if there's not going to be that truth that there will be an influx of souls and you have a job to do. Wherever you are, share the gospel. And the old saying goes, if necessary, use words. And in other words, be that kind of light that draws people to you and they ask the questions and you have the answer that brings revival to their heart. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your word because once again, Lord, your word is like that magnifying glass on our hearts. Your word just opens up our eyes to see the truth of what's in us. The truth of what needs to be corrected and God the truth of who you are so Lord as we just close off tonight I just pray your blessing upon everyone that has joined us whether it be online or whether it be in-house I pray that Lord your abiding presence would reside in every heart And Lord, we just declare your word now unto him who is able to present you faultless before his throne. Be glory, dominion, and honor forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you if you've joined us online. We don't want you to miss this Sunday as we have Christoph Ulysse coming to share. Uh, it's going to be something exciting and powerful. And following our morning service, we will also have a time of fellowship, a koyenia in our parking lot. We have a bouncy castle for the children. We have food, barbecue. Hamburgs and sausages uh, And refreshments So you come and join us and be a part of it We look forward to seeing you God bless you and be with you Bye for now